Our gospel lesson today comes from the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tradition is a funny thing. On the one hand, tradition is what makes us who we are. We are here today in part because tradition tells us to be. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord Come into God's presence with singing. And we have been lighting Advent candles all these four weeks because tradition tells us to. The first Advent wreath appeared in Germany in 1839. A Lutheran minister working at a mission for children created a wreath out of the wheel of a cart. And he placed 20 small red candles and four large white candles inside the ring. The red candles were lit on weekdays and the white candles on Sundays. He adapted this from a Scandinavian practice that helped citizens remember that the long winter nights would come to an end, that the light would return. We use evergreens and liturgical colors now, but the purpose is still the same, to remind ourselves that the light will return. Now on Christmas Eve at the family service, the first carol we sing is O Come All Ye Faithful. And for the candlelight communion service, the first carol is Once in Royal David City. Now there may well be good reason for why this has become our habit, but we keep doing it because it's the way we've been doing it. And Beverly said to me the other day, I didn't tell her I was including this, by the way. Beverly said to me the other day, it wouldn't be Christmas if we didn't sing Once in Royal David City first. So I wonder what traditions you and your families have. I wonder which of those traditions you love and which of those traditions you endure. You're thinking about that right now, aren't you? The things that you love and the things you endure for the sake of love. 
That's the thing about tradition. The healthiest and holiest traditions are always rooted in a sense of deep and abiding love. Sometimes we forget that. Or sometimes I forget that. My first Christmas on my own, that is, the first Christmas I was working for a church, which meant the first Christmas I wasn't in Michigan with my family, my roommate and I decided we would have our very own merry little Christmas. We got ourselves a tree and we even wrestled it into the stand. And then there was a disagreement. You see, I grew up with all manner of colored lights all over the tree. You already know where this is headed. My roommate grew up with white lights in carefully placed rows all over the tree. We both had a very clear vision of how it was supposed to be. It's just that those visions didn't line up. I'm not going to tell you who won that argument, except to say it wasn't me. In any case, that sort of situation, on even greater levels, that sort of situation is why we need Joseph at Christmas. It's tempting to think that we don't. After all, he has exactly no lines. He is not the part that anyone gets excited about playing in the pageant. He basically stands there. My friend Emily, she has a five-year-old daughter, Clara. They are teaching her the Christmas story using a fairly basic nativity set. The first time they assembled it this year, Emily asked Clara to name each of the characters. Now keep in mind, Clara is a preacher's kid who has been in church school before she actually knew what church school was. And so she named Mary and Jesus. She knew the shepherds and the wise men, and she identified the animals and the angels. But when Emily pointed to Joseph, Clara was stumped. Eventually she guessed, is that the barn boy? Poor Joseph. But we really do need him, especially this time of year, especially when we are steeped in so much tradition. Because tradition is a good thing. It makes us who we are. And sometimes tradition can also be our undoing. And the more I think about it, I think that Joseph is able to teach us about tradition, both its value and its cost, better than anyone else in all of Scripture. His life starts out in an extremely traditional way. He was born and raised in Bethlehem, a small town outside of Jerusalem. At some point, his family moved 90 miles north to Nazareth. He was a carpenter, though we don't actually learn that until much later in Matthew's Gospel, when someone incredulously asks about Jesus, is that really the carpenter's son? Presumably, Joseph's father was a carpenter too, 
as trades were handed down the family line. He came from a distinguished family, from the house of David, and he himself was distinguished enough to be betrothed, to be engaged to Mary, all of which is well and good until it isn't. Because, as Matthew so delicately puts it, before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then we hear, but her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Now to fully appreciate Joseph's story, we have to remember that he lived not only in a different time, but in a different culture. Now, not everything has changed about the way women are treated, but many things have changed. In the ancient world, pregnancy outside of marriage brought shame and dishonor to the mother-to-be, the father-to-be, and to their entire families. In some cases, even today, this is still true, but not always. The thing to remember here, though, is that Joseph, like all of us, like every other human being in human history, is a product of the time and culture in which he lives. And he knows two things. One is that Mary is pregnant. And the second is that it's not his. I suspect that is why Matthew is so quick to remind us that Joseph is righteous. What that means in biblical talk is that he is extremely well-schooled in the religious tradition of his time. And that tradition taught that if a woman is accused of adultery, the matter is brought before the town elders. If it is shown that her husband is lying, the husband is charged a fee of 100 silver shekels. But if it's shown that the charge is true, the woman is taken to the door of her father's home, and the men of the village stone her to death. In so doing, the tradition states, you purge the evil from your midst. That is one definition of righteousness, the purging of evil in order to pursue the good. So Joseph could have put Mary to death. Tradition allowed for it. But he was unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, and he planned to dismiss her quietly. This does mean that Mary would escape with her life. But I have to wonder what sort of life she would be left. Pregnancy can only be hidden for so long. She would be on her own, shamed and dishonored for being alone, and further shamed and dishonored for being a single mother. Once again, many things have changed, but not everything. Odds are good that in that time, in that culture, she and her child would not survive long, or even if they did, that survival would be painful and perilous. A decision like that, though, could save Joseph. He would be able to slip away quietly. 
Now, if Joseph had done this, we probably would never have heard the story of Jesus. At least, certainly not the way it comes to us today. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? We remember how Mary says yes. How often do we remember that Joseph has to say yes, too? We aren't told very much of how his yes comes to be. Only that he has a dream, an enormous, life-changing dream, in which an angel visits him and says, Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. She's going to have a child, a child conceived by the Holy Spirit, but you will be the one to name him. You will be the one to call him Jesus. For those of you who are keeping track, a traditional Christmas for the Holy Family went out the window a good while ago. The vision of what their family life was supposed to be and the vision of what is now in front of Joseph, those visions do not line up at all. The angel seems remarkably unconcerned by this. The angel simply says, she's going to have a baby, Joseph, and please, would you raise it as your own? You see, in those days, to name a child was to lay claim to that child's heritage and lineage. In other words, as one preacher puts it, Joseph is being asked to be willing to believe in the impossible, to claim the scandal, to adopt it and give it his name, to not only accept the whole situation, but to rock it tenderly to sleep in his arms. Joseph is a righteous man. No matter what choice he makes, he will still be righteous. But the angel is asking him to choose what scholars describe as a higher righteousness. That sort of righteousness, it is hard to come by because it's not righteousness that focuses on the law. It's not clear in that regard. It's righteousness that focuses on the bigger picture, and it always leans toward love and toward the well-being of others. This higher righteousness pays attention to the consequences, the sometimes unrighteous consequences that come from our efforts to be righteous. It doesn't ask, what does the law allow me to do? It asks, What does love compel me to do? What will bring the most light and the most life into this situation? It is with all of this swirling in his mind and in his dreams that Joseph has to make his decision. He has to balance tradition and law on the one side and an angel of the Lord seemingly on the other. He has to think about how much one person can handle and what integrity means and what the bounds of commitment really are to say nothing of figuring out to whom or to what he is most committed. 
It is a lot to think about. And it is a big question whether he will permit God to be born, whether he will stay in the midst of it all and give his thus far untarnished name to a scandalous child. That Joseph says yes might be the biggest miracle recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It is certainly the biggest miracle that you or I have access to. Because this is the uncomfortable truth this Advent. God is always coming to us in ways that allow for us to turn him down. We want Christmas and life to be the way we remember it. With the right color lights and the right carols, we would like it the way it has always been, please. And there's so much on our plates. Please, don't change one more thing. There are presents to purchase and packages to wrap. There's turkey or tofu to be cooked or reservations to be made. There's family to gather, airline tickets to buy. There is a lot going on, and it's not done yet. And right in the middle of it all comes this question to each and every one of us. Will you give your name to God's latest idea? Will you permit God to be born? Because that is still God's intention, to be born, to be born among us, to be Emmanuel again today. That is the most sacred tradition of all. The tradition of a God who shows up and invites us into something new, something utterly unexpected, but something that can save us all if we let it. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but had no relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.